Hey everybody, super quick note at the top of the show before we launch in. I just want to say this episode is dedicated to Stephen W. Phillips, who I've never met, but he literally wrote the book on Opryland USA. Uh, it came out in 2016. And then shortly thereafter, while he was under 40, he passed away way, way too young. Um, I, re I wanted to reach out to him and talk to him for this episode and then uh, found his obituary. So I just want to thank you, Stephen, for making this story easier to tell. And I hope you are listening wherever you are. Opryland USA was around for most of the 70s. It opened in 72 after three years of concepting and construction, and it was around for most of the 90s. It shut its doors for good on December 31st, 1997, but it was around for the whole of the 1980s. If you were a kid in Nashville in that decade, there's a strong chance you knew the park intimately. And like any kid who did, you would forever have the ultimate insider Nashville conversation starter in your back pocket. Why do you think they really shut Opryland down? It's so common a question that the National Business Journal asked it in print a couple years back and framed it the way that people ask out in the wild. No, really, really. Why did Gaylord close Opryland USA? Emphasis on really, as if there is likely some other explanation beyond those offered back in the 90s. And from here, you'd start to exchange memories. I should tell you that this is Nashville Demystified. This is technically the first episode of our miniseries Music City Tales from the 1980s. A look back at Nashville and the decade that brought us back to the future, NWA and the Reagan presidency. I'm your host, Alex Steed. If you've not already, you should listen to our prologue, an episode entitled Last Ticket to Bonertown. It really does help set the stage. Nashville Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a video and content production company with offices here in the city. It's distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. Please subscribe, review, and share with friends. Do that whole thing. It really does help. And check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So it's July of 1985. You're 13 years old. Opryland USA, Opryland for short, is without a doubt your favorite place. It's rich in adventure and possibility and thousands of other kids. Those who went on a regular basis insist that it was safe enough to go without parental supervision on a regular basis. Many, many did. Uh, this is the case for you. Has a lot to do with Opryland, sure, but it also has a lot to do with how hands-off parenting was in the pre-helicopter parent era. Not that it matters much to you now. You'll come to appreciate it later. But the park is the brainchild of WSM executive Irving Waugh, who, 16 years before, went to Houston on golf and fell in love with the Astrodome area. He thought it could work for the Opry, which had outgrown its home at the Ryman. He liked how there wasn't just one attraction there. There were several. There was a theme park and there were hotels. He thought about the 325,000 people who were coming to Nashville every year and beyond going to the Opry, they had little to do. He thought about local kids and families that could benefit from all this too. One imagines that he thought about the heaps and heaps and heaps of money that could be made. Maybe something similar could be done with the Opry, with a theme park and a destination hotel and a new, beautiful, impressive venue for the Opry itself. He came back, wrote his vision into a memo, and three years later, Opryland USA was open to the public, with the Cumberland River on one side and the relatively new Briley Parkway on the other. Sitting on 110 acres of land, the park, which is unique in that it is heavily music-themed, opens on May 27th, 1972, the day you were born. 
Just shy of two years later, the new Grand Ole Opry will open. And three years later, the extravagant Opryland Hotel makes its debut. And here you are now on a hot July morning. You arrive just before open. You've got $5 in your pocket, pizza and soda money. You're gonna be all set for the day. Your season pass is basically your mom's idea of childcare this summer. Today you ride in with your older brother. He works a pizza stand in the park. And when he's not working, you can ride in with his friends. Usually, for somewhere between $2.90 and $3.25 an hour, they sling pizza and fries, they run the rides and games, they clean up puke. Some of them even perform in the shows, large and small, that take place throughout Opryland. The park is pregnant with possibility. A few weeks back, you meet a girl there who lives close by but goes to another school, and she shows you a trick. Her family brings a stocked cooler and sets it right outside one of the gates, over in a shaded wooded area away from the entrances. Whenever you both get hungry, you head over to it, you make sure no one's looking, you reach through the gate and take out snacks, Cokes, whatever you need. And you think, you've got to try this sometime. It's not hurting the park none. This year they'll sell 70,000 pounds of popcorn, 65,000 hot dogs, and a quarter million pounds of fries. Attendees will buy 4.5 million Coke products. They're doing okay. Despite it being right next to the park in a major tourist attraction, you've never gone to the Grand Ole Opry. You don't care for country music generally, which shocks a lot of the out-of-towners you meet there. Their families are here because country is their everything. And even though Opryland purports to be focused on American music, it really is in a lot of ways. Country remains the primary focus for those who visit. It's not all foreign to you, it's just not your cup of tea. You've got a couple of friends who went to a rainy fanfare back in June, and they told you all about seeing Charlie Daniels and David Allen Coe, and one of them even met Reba at a meet and greet. But you and your brother are like thousands of Nashville kids who, despite growing up in the capital of country music, don't really pay much attention to it. Your favorite songs right now are Prince's Raspberry Beret, which is getting heavy radio play, and Tears for Fears Shout, also on the radio quite a bit. A couple years older, your brother is a big fan of The Power of Love, a Huey Lewis song which he became enamored with when you both went to see Back to the Future a couple weeks back. He's also partial to Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days. Your mom told you that before the Opry was over here, it used to be at the Ryman, downtown, and it was in disrepair or something bad. It could get up to 120 degrees at what they called the mother church of country music. Some of the pews there rested on crates. Surrounding it were strip clubs and bars and party types. The location here, the location at Opryland, was much nicer for families to come and visit, she said. And you surely don't care about the Opryland Hotel also next to the park, which if you'd go inside, you'd learn is big. It's beautiful. There's a harp, there's a giant greenhouse, there are suspended walkways. All that you know is that you've got a friend whose brother works at the hotel and they say that there's a ghost who hangs out around the ornate chandelier. She's supposedly young, she's dressed in all black. Sometimes without warning, she shakes that chandelier. People say her clothes are from the antebellum period. And you wonder, how can a ghost be wearing clothes? Are the clothes immortal as well? Are the clothes ghosts? How does that work? Supposedly, she haunts your beloved park as well. Opryland staff will share with each other and friends their various encounters with a ghost. Music will play out of devices that are unpowered or out of stereos that have no tapes in their decks. Rides will come to life for no reason, under no supervision. Staff will share these stories with each other 20 and 30 years from now. 
There will be conflicting reports. Some will say it's the ghost of a landkeeper who, a few years back, was killed right before the park was open that day. He didn't realize a ride was being tested, stuck his head up at the wrong time, was struck dead. Had to be him, right? If anyone was going to haunt a park, wouldn't it be him? But most will agree that the specter belongs to Mrs. McGavick, the ghost that supposedly haunts the hotel, though nobody really understands which Mrs. McGavick that is exactly. It's said that her hauntings take place on account of her wanting to see her family land turned into a public park, not a private venture. Thousands will look back at Opryland and remember being dropped off, season passes in hand, day after day in the summers or after school. And without a sense of irony or cynicism, they'll say, that was our child care. That was our summer camp. When you grow up and put all this together, you wonder if Mrs. McGavick had complicated feelings about it all. After all, complicated feelings is probably what drives a ghost to haunt. At Opryland, you aren't interested in the shows. You're there for the rides and the promise of adventure. You're there to hang with other people your age. You're there because mom says you've got to go somewhere during the day, and Opryland is the safest. This is the second time you're here in a handful of days. Last week, it was with your family. At least once a summer, your grandparents come in from Jacksonville, and you all go to Opryland, even though you and your brother are regulars already. Of course, you don't mind. Historically, you all go together, them, you, your mom, your brother. But this year, your brother couldn't make it because he couldn't get someone to cover his shift. And so you all make it a point to stop by and see him at the pizza stand a few times that day. Your grandfather makes a big deal over how much he loves that your brother has a job. You already go and see him at the stand nearly every time you go to Opryland as he sneaks you slices until you get to a point at the end of the summer where you can't imagine eating another slice of pizza ever again. When you go to Opryland with your grandparents, they pay so you can get something that isn't dictated by your brother's ability to sneak it to you. You can get hot dogs, you can get fries, you can get a Coke. They opt for roasted chicken and prime rib. They give you extra money to play games, which you rarely get the opportunity to do, but you have to pay for it by sitting with them while they watch live performances like Country Music USA, an outdoor review where musicians play newer country songs, there's one by Alabama, and older ones. Your grandfather nudges you to tell you that this one's a Jimmy Rogers tune. Pay attention, they remind, because someday some of these people will be famous like Ty Hendon, who was picked out of this crowd to become part of Roy Acuff's band and then went on to a new televised talent show hosted by Ed McMahon called Star Search. And this is true. It was a big deal when a Nashvilleian was on the show, and everybody tuned in. Hendon would make it all the way to the finals. Legend had it he missed his senior prom because he had five performances that day at Opryland, but he wouldn't have had it any other way. This was how we made it to the big time. And he got there. Ten years from this summer, he'll release What Mattered Most. He'll go number one. After coming out of the closet 20 years after that, he'll release the song with pronouns changed to match his newly revealed sexual preference. Lots of folks like your grandparents come to Opryland. It's what keeps so many of these stage performers working. In 1982, American General bought the NLT Corporation, a national-based insurance holding company. NLT held all sorts of things, but American General was primarily interested in all of its financial services and acknowledged it didn't know much about how to run hotels or theme parks. Didn't know much about country music either. So it sold to Gaylord, a subsidiary of Oklahoma Publishing. When Gaylord bought it, they took a look at who was buying tickets to Opryland, and when they realized senior citizens were a significant part of their customer base, they slowed investment in new rides and they kept on putting money into performances and live shows. After the buy, they would keep investing in the park, though, putting hundreds of millions into improvements and new attractions. As attendance continued to grow, they invested in new rides again. 
A few years from now, in 1989, they'll invest in Chaos, a $7 million indoor roller coaster encased in an eight-story building and augmented by special effects. Your brother will tell you that the effects team who put it together are the same who helped make the Alien and Predator and the Ghosts in Ghostbusters. You'll ride this roller coaster and see all sorts of crazy stuff projected onto massive screens. Your brother read somewhere that the director of these videos said, it's a journey, oh God, it's like a journey. Like a journey through like a time frame continuum with the texture of sort of like the fabric of the universe to be grandiose, but that really isn't it. Maybe I'd characterize it as a time space adventure. In other words, it felt like a roller coaster designed with an acid trip in mind. You won't know this when you first ride it, but you'll be lucky to catch it at all. There's so many components and moving parts that it often gets shut down for repairs. But when you do catch it, you find it pretty cool. But that's not for another four years, a lifetime from now. Right now you're young and free and roaming a pre-chaos Opryland. Some days you roam alone and you see who you're gonna run into and others you coordinate with friends. Today, you meet a boy who's visiting with his family from Austin. He has four hours before they're all gonna leave. While his parents are in the New Orleans area seeing the I Hear America singing review and taking his little sister on the carousel, you both are in the hill country section of the park. You ride the flume zoom. In fact, you ride it three times in a row. It's your favorite. You keep getting drenched, though the sun nearly dries you off completely before your next descent down that 90 degree, 75 foot drop. The first time you try to look cool, like you're beyond getting scared by raising your hands above your head and smiling all the way down. But you are, as always, a little scared on your way. And that's part of what makes you love that ride. He laughs at the bottom and he says it was scary. And you laugh and you say you're always a little scared and you're glad he said so. Feeling more comfortable this time, you raise your hands and you both scream and you laugh your faces off at the bottom. The third time up, you feel his hand on yours during the ascent. It's a welcome surprise. You awkwardly hold right hands while putting your left hands in the air. It was nice, and the butterflies from that free fall never really fully subside. Together you do laps around the park. It's crowded with families, teenagers running around, with old people walking at a leisurely pace. You pass a breathless little boy soaked from head to toe, going on and on about the animatronic bear at the Grizzly River Rampage. You tell your new friend what your brother told you, that when that ride opened, the starved Grizzly Adams came out and gave away autographed pictures. He laughs and remarks at how many trees there are, how green the whole park is. Your brother once told you that when they opened the park, nearly all the trees were left intact. If a tree had to go, they moved it to another place. He told you that a lot of parks are like concrete jungles, and part of what makes Opryland interesting is that it maintained a lot of the land that was here before it came about. That doesn't mean much to you until later, when you go to a few other parks and you see your brother's right. Most of them are just concrete slabs with rides on them. In that way, Opryland is special. You ride the Tin Lizzies together and wonder aloud if cars really only went five miles per hour back in the 20s, or if that's a park safety thing. Are the cars here really antiques converted for this purpose, or were they made especially for the park? He reaches for your hand and he holds it again. You tell him the Old West section of the park is based on El Paso, and you ask if that's what Texas is really like, and he kindly explains he's never been to that part of Texas. 
El Paso is on the border of Mexico. It's an eight-hour drive from Austin, which is about as far from him as you are in Nashville from your grandparents in Jacksonville. He holds your hand again until it's time to get off. You make your way to another pizza stand that's not the one where your brother works. Thank God he'd be relentless about seeing any of this. And the boy tells you that you sure know a lot about this whole place. And he asks how often you come and you tell him it's a lot. And he says he has to go soon, but he's so glad he met you. And he leans in and you're sure he's going to kiss you. But he does this weird half hug thing where you don't know exactly what's happening and you try to lean into it as well. But he somehow bangs your forehead with his chin. He's embarrassed and he mentions the time again and that he really should get going. But he writes his name and address down on a napkin and asks you to please stay in touch. You will write back and forth a few times, but it'll lose steam around November, which is also when the park closes down for the season. Even though your correspondence loses that steam, there will be a few years where there is not a day that goes by in which you don't think of him. There is not a time that you will go to the park and not more than half hope to see him, especially when you ride that flume zoom. You will sit on the sky ride, suspended far above that park, and see if you can spot him, even though you know full well in your heart that he's not there. Come 87, he's nearly fully faded from your memory when you're working the park yourself. You work at the souvenir stand and take pictures of guests dressed in old-time garb, and you start seeing someone who suffers through their days in one of the park mascot costumes. Not Yancey Banjo, no, or Johnny Guitar, Barney Bass, Frankie Fiddle, or Jose Mandolin. You start seeing Delia Dulcimer, who, when in human form, drives an 81 Crown Victoria and explains that the mascot costumes can weigh between 40 and 90 pounds. Being inside of one is like walking around in a tiny oven you can barely see out of. They smell like puke because people have puked in them more than once. People have puked on them. A lot of kids will try to punch you in the groin while you're wearing it, which isn't great. This thing lasts for a couple of weeks, never really goes anywhere, but that's okay. A coworker will tell you that they saw Delilah canoodling with a security guard after a night shift, which is fine because it was pretty underwhelming anyway. You never date at the park again. Decades from now, out of nowhere, you'll remember that boy from Austin and wonder where he ended up. Having misplaced those letters a lifetime ago, you're left to guess at what his name is. You'll never find out. Think you've seen it all at Opryland? Well, think again. Opryland 87 is a whole new shooting match. Two new fully staged shows, the rootin' tootin' way out west. From radio's golden age to the big broadcast. New non-stop roving entertainers everywhere you turn. And a new skin-drenching water ride, the old mill screen. So come on, get off that sofa and see the all-new Opryland 87. Now, back to our program. Donna Summer's song, Dinner with Gershwin, is played on the radio quite a bit and you love it. Summer will move to the city eight years later and people will see her and her family at the park. You've seen Dick Clark, of course, and Opry regulars like Porter Wagner. You see Roy Acuff here and there, which is not surprising since he lives on the grounds. A few weeks back, you came home and said something snarky about the color of the outfit you saw Acuff wearing, and your mom would remind you that he was an old man who was all alone now, and you immediately regretted having thought bad thoughts about him, even if he did use the Opry stage and a bunch of yo-yo tricks to humanize Nixon back in the 70s. At least that's what Delilah said he did. Years later, you'd learn that E.W. Wendell, a Gaylord executive and cheerleader for all things Opry, had a house built for Acuff on the grounds in the early 80s so he could live around people after becoming a widower. 
To the Tennessean, Acuff said, I'm leading a very lonely life in a big house all by myself. Now I'll be someplace where there'll be people. I want to straighten out my life. It'll help me get out of this loneliness I live in. I'm in the park or Opry House every day anyway. I realize that with millions of people visiting Opryland, some will want to drop in on me at the house. It isn't going to bother me. Today, while on break, you meet and become fast friends with Amber, a performer in I Hear America Singing. She went to a performing arts school in New York, where she was discovered by a park-sanctioned talent hunter at a recruitment event held there. She is 5'7", which she says is tall for a dancer, and she's strong and lean. She's built like a dancer because she's a dancer, she says. When she smiles, her green eyes get all watery and almost close shut. She's 20 and doesn't mind that you were 16. She'll tell you all about the city she's from, how her dad knows Angela Lansbury because he works on a bunch of things, including the Tonys. And it may sound like they have money, but they do not, she says. And even if they did, she'd want to work for her own money anyway. In time, she'll introduce you to everyone she's met at the park, all of her coworkers. And you all laugh and drink all night at house parties and then sleep off big time headaches until noon. Amber will tell you that some people think that the whole song and dance thing at Opryland can get a bit hokey, but it pays musicians to be musicians. It brings in performers from all over the country. It employs 350 musicians at any given time. She reminded that it had helped people like Ty Hendon and Cynthia Rhodes, who'd worked at the park in the 70s. She sang over by the Timber Topper, and she'd go on to be in flash dance and dirty dancing. People say she's from a real religious family, which makes you wonder how they dealt with her playing a woman who has an abortion in a movie. Amber says that Opryland has put a lot of musicians to work and that it gives them some place to be together. It gives them jobs where they can sing regularly, and that's something they need. She lives in a small house with three roommates, Jason and Nicole, and they all play music and sing all night and drink whiskey and do a little coke sometimes to keep drinking and playing. In 1997, your brother calls and tells you, oh my God, Opryland is closing, and you are in total disbelief. What are they going to do with all of it, you ask? He says they'll probably relocate a lot of the rides, and they'll probably scrap the rest. They're building a mall in its place. After you hang up, you are surprised to find yourself crying. When you are 46, you click a link to a National Business Journal article and laugh at the headline. No, really. Why did Gaylord close Opryland, USA? You think about all the times a conversation has started like that and quickly descended into a bull session about how great that place was. The no really piece of the headline is especially funny because many just don't believe the reasoning. If it was making money and it made people happy, why would you shut it down? It was such a foreign concept to so many. Most rarely ever had something as good as Opryland going for them. And if they ever did, they couldn't imagine shutting it down. If you're printing cash, why would you break the press? To make more money? It just felt callous. When Gaylord CEO Bud Wendell stepped down in 97, the Opry properties lost their biggest advocate. When Gaylord bought Opryland and its associated properties, including Opryland USA back in 83, Gaylord himself was cited in the New York Times as saying that the return on investment was not of interest to him. The characters and real people behind it, like Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl, were what was significant to him. Never mind that Minnie Pearl was not a real person. She was personified by an actress named Sarah Cannon. But the sentiment is nice nonetheless. This was like the least 80s CEO thing to feel or say publicly, especially so early on in the greed is good decade. Wendell, a steadfast Opry fan, maintained the same attitude and made money on the theme park. 
When Wendell was out of the way, the company rushed to catch up with a kind of business that didn't get bogged down by sentiment. For many, it felt like a big yellow taxi situation. Of Gaylord shutting it all down, Wendell said, Opryland was successful. And it was successful when they shut it down. We weren't losing money. It was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But why did they really do it, you ask yourself? It's such a monumental decision. A decision that feels to you like a direct assault on your youth. It feels like a kick in the throat. A theft from your younger self. Why did they have to go ahead and steal every awkward kiss, every late night conversation about entry-level music jobs? Why did they go ahead and steal your youth only to turn it into a mall? You look at that headline and think a move that monumental couldn't just be attributed to something as simple or depressing as some business people wanted to make more money. And unsentimental malls make more money faster than sentimental theme parks. Could it? No, really. Why did Opryland USA close down? Surely there must be a complicated answer here. You hope, at least. Because the most obvious one is just so depressing. All right, everybody, that's it for this episode. I want to thank audio engineer Cameron Davidson for putting the show together. I want to thank Michael Eads from We Own This Town for both giving the show a home and redesigning our logo a bit to fit the miniseries. It looks great. Episode notes, including all the sources I utilize for this episode, can be found at the website. I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode. Uh, Subscribe, like, follow, do all those things. Thank you so much for listening.